You may have uh, noticed we're in a series in Revelation. We're in chapter 9, and my title is Sin Makes You Stupid. <laughs> Revelation chapter 9, in our series on the tribulation, this will make more sense to you later. I noticed this, um, when people go through trouble, or you could even call it tribulation, when people go through trouble, when they go through tribulation, I've noticed in my ministry as a pastor, all my adult life I've been a pastor, I've noticed this about people. When they go through trouble, they don't sit still. They move. They move away from God or they move to God. Have you noticed that? When they go through difficulties in life, they, they tend to move. I've noticed when people go through like the loss of a job, they will sometimes move away from God. Or sometimes they will say, you know, I was never closer to God than, than when I lost my job. Or when they go through a financial difficulty or financial pressure, some people, wake, they shake their fist at God, they blame God, and they don't move They don't move to God. Other people move towards God in difficulty. Or like in when you have a divorce or a marital hardship. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of people that the divorce just set them back. And, and, and maybe they didn't feel like they were consciously moving away from God, but they felt farther from God and it was really hard for them. It was bad enough to have a broken relationship, but now they have an alienation from God. But then other people, when they go through a marital difficulty or, you know, God forbid, a divorce, they go towards God. They move towards God. It's true in that. I, I think of a man that used to be an elder in our church, a godly man. And, and he would give his testimony, his wife, and when they would give their testimony, he was uh, ambivalent about the things of God. He didn't really care about the things of God. And then, then a tragedy touched their family. They lost a little baby, and he came to God during that time. Sometimes an illness or death of a parent. I'll hear people say, when my mother died, when my dad died, I just said, God, how come you let that happen? And I got hardened against God. And yet other people, they will just say, you know, it was when my dad died. A man told me just recently, it was when my dad died that I felt like I got closer to the Lord and I came, I I began to follow the Lord. And what we're going to see today is that we're talking about a, a time in human history called trouble. It's called trouble. It's called the tribulation. And we'll see in the tribulation that millions of people will move toward God. And many, many will move away from God. They will harden themselves to God. And we will see in our study of the tribulation, in this part of it, in in Revelation chapter 9, that it's a horrifying thing to move away from God. You notice in the, the, the revelation that the you can see that the, the narrative of the story of Revelation is kind of broken up in these groups of seven, the seven seal judgments that come, and, and that you remember the scroll that's in heaven, and as they unseal the scroll with each seal, a judgment is poured out upon the earth. And when you get to the seventh seal, then that seal is open, and seven trumpets are sounded one at a time, and with each sounding of each trumpet, another judgment is poured out upon the earth. And you're going to see that when the seventh trumpet sounds, Within it are seven more bowls or vile judgments. They are poured out upon the earth. Essentially what you have in the book of Revelation in this section is seven, three sections of seven judgments that are 
poured out upon the earth with brief interruptions to see what's happening in heaven during that time. And we're going to notice that today as we are now in the trumpet judgments. And we had the first four last week in chapter 8. We have two in chapter 9. And the other one we won't have until chapter 11. There's going to be another parenthesis, which is interesting, where we look on what God is doing with his saints. So it's almost like this. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's an ancient, he's an apostle, and he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's exiled there, and he's got these concerns for the churches, and he's given a vision of Jesus, and a vision of heaven, and even a vision of the future, and he writes it down, and he gives it to the churches. He sends it to the churches, and it's for the purpose of stimulating the faith of the churches, and for them to see what's going on in heaven when everything on earth is falling apart. So you can see how well that kind of goes with our lives. Hey, Lord, the, everything in my life isn't exactly perfect, Lord. Lord, there's trouble in my life. Lord, I, things aren't the way I wish they would. I don't even think they're the way that you ultimately want them to be, God. Okay, take a look at heaven and what's happening in heaven. And so we go from the chaos of earth to the order of heaven. We go from the rebellion of earth to the worship that's in heaven. And you kind of see that. And here we are now in chapter 9. And in chapter 9 is, again, it's the fifth of the trumpet judgments and the last three trumpet judgments the first four had they affected men but they primarily affected men through affecting the earth but the last three are going to directly affect men and women on the earth and they're so bad they intensify they're so bad they're called woes the last three of the trumpet judgments are also called woes the first and effect second and the third woe if you will woe means disaster and so we're going to see as we read chapter 9 Verses 1 through 21, there are two obvious sections in it. And, the, and there, there are two different horrifying waves of judgment that are going to be poured out upon the earth. And this is at a time in the future, in a time we call the tribulation. And I believe this is a description of the great tribulation, the last half of the seven years of tribulation. As we read, you can see these very clearly. If your Bible doesn't have them already marked out, you can see it very clearly. There are two times of when then there's chaos on the earth. That's poured out. So, and you'll see that the first one is in verses 1 through 12. And the second one is obviously starts in verse 13 and goes to the end of the chapter. The fifth trumpet, or the first woe. And the sixth trumpet, or the second woe. So now let's read this text together. This is Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven. To the earth, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke from the pit. And then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Then you have this horrifying commentary in verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. Verse 7. 
Now, the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men. Five months, and they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose Hebrew name is Abaddon, but in Greek his name is Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Now, verse 13, and the sixth trumpet, and the second woe. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had a trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads. And with them they do harm. Verse 20, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or the thefts. When you read the passage, it was obviously horrifying. Whether or not you understand all of the particular symbols, it's really easy to see something horrifying that that comes out of hell is happening on the earth. And another thing that you see very clearly, if you read this once or twice with thoughtfulness, you see very clearly that these things are not happening because the devil wants them to happen primarily. These things are not happening because men want them to happen primarily. These things aren't controlled by the devil. These things aren't controlled by men. If you, if you ask the question, who's in control here? And we'll show you who's in control. In verse 1, it says, the angel sounds the trumpet, then the judgment comes. So the lamb, remember, is the one that's giving the angels permission to unseal the scroll. And the, and the trumpets are being blown as the last seal is opened by the permission that God gives to them. In verse 1, the fallen angel or the fallen star, which is, is identified as he, has given the key to the bottomless pit. He doesn't go and take it. He's given the key to the bottomless pit. In verse 3, the locusts that pour out of the smoky hole in the earth are given power. They don't take power. They are given power. In verse 4, they were commanded not to harm. So the, the intensity of what they can do is controlled. The timing of their release is controlled. The duration of the time which, in which they torment people is controlled. God is in control of every bit of this. In verse 5, they are not given authority to kill, but only to wound or to harm. 
in verse 13, the sixth judgment comes only after the angel sounds the trumpet again. In verse 14, there's the release of these four mysterious angels. Um, they were bound for a specific time and purpose, and then they were released at a specific time for a specific purpose. In verse 15, these four angels had been prepared ahead of time. So, so if, you, if you like theological terms, one of the things that you would want to say is that this passage is heavy with the sovereignty of God. This passage is heavy with the sovereignty of God. The whole book is heavy with the sovereignty of God. The whole book can be characterized as, on earth you have chaos, in heaven you have control. The throne room is the control room of the entire universe. And it's a good thing to remember when you're trying to decide who ought to be in control of your life, who ought to be in control of your schedule, who ought to be in control of your time, who ought to be in control of your decisions, who ought to be in control of your money, who ought to be in control of how you handle the hardships that come into your life. I would suggest that you let the person who's in control of the universe be in control of you. Because what's going to happen, and you're going to see this real clearly in this antithesis, in this passage, the good and the evil. And that is, we tend to think we're in control of our, ourselves. But when we say, I'm in control of my life, what we really, what really happens is we're under demonic control. And we're going to go in the direction that that takes us. When we yield to God, we're under God's control. And there are really only two kinds of people on the earth. People that are under God's control and people that are not under God's control. And they're really influenced demonically. So what you have here is you have this, you know, this picture, this, this picture that John is, is recording and he's passing on to the churches and imagine how it affects him. He's saying, wow, there's going to be a horrifying evil coming to the earth, but God is in control. And so he sends the letter to the churches and the churches are going through all kinds of hardships, but then they say, but wait, this is going to get a lot worse, but God is in control. And so what, that's the way we ought to feel too, is to recognize that if that's true of the churches, it's going to be true in the future, in the tribulation, which is obviously future. These kinds of things that are described here have not obviously ever happened in the history of humanity before. So they're yet future. And so between the future and the past is what? Is us. So if in the future, God is in control of all of the cosmos and he's going to bring everything to a great crescendo and rule and reign. And if in the past he was in control, then guess who's in control right now? Is not the Democrats. It is not the Republicans. It's not CNN. It's not Fox News. It's not uh, your favorite football team. It's not your favorite shoe shop. The, the, the control center of the entire universe is the throne room of God. And that's just a, a theme that you cannot miss when you study this. Now let's look at the two sections. The first woe, or the fifth trumpet, verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, torments millions of people. So the star falls from heaven. He is given the key to the bottomless pit. This should be a powerful angel. Some have even said maybe Satan himself. This bottomless pit is also known as the abyss. It's the place where some of the fallen angels and demons have been confined since after the fall of Satan. And so he, the star that had fallen, is given the key to the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is mentioned three more times in this chapter. It's mentioned four more times in Revelation. This is the first mention of the bottomless pit, and it should get you thinking, you know, what is the lake of fire? What is the bottomless pit? What is Hades? What is hell? 
Where are they? And how are they characterized? It might be interesting to study your Bible. But I will tell you this. It's not to be confused with the lake of fire. The bottomless pit is not the lake of fire. It's separate because if you get to chapter 20, you see that during the kingdom age, Satan is cast into the bottomless pit. His first experience there, perhaps. And, and during the... And, and at the at the end of time, his final abode is the lake of fire. But we'll get to that later on. It's interesting, though, that there, there that in Isaiah, in the prophet Isaiah, in, in chapter 14, and the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 28, both of them have a record of the fall of proud, haughty kings. And in the record of the fall of these proud and haughty kings, there's a poetic reference to something that must have happened before. It kind of goes back to the garden. And most Bible scholars, many Bible scholars, believe it's a poetic reference to the fall of Satan. Because there are things that are said about the king of Tyre, things that are said about the king of Babylon, which could not apply to a man himself. So they believe that it's kind of a, it's a, it's a reference backward, a poetic reference backward to the fall of Satan. We know, obviously, the Bible teaches that Satan fell. Jesus said in the book of Luke that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Satan, Lucifer, Satan was an angel who rebelled against God. And he, Jesus said he fell like lightning from heaven. And this Jesus told his disciples when he was sending the 70 out to do ministry. Don't be intimidated by the devil and demons. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the fallen we know that Satan fell. We know in chapter 12, he's going to be cast down to the earth. This he of chapter 9 and verse 1 is either a powerful demon or some would say Satan himself. I would suggest perhaps a powerful demon, but we could like arm wrestle about that. In, in, uh, when Jesus was casting demons out of the maniac of Gadara, remember the demons spoke to him and they said, don't send me to the abyss. Don't send me to the bottomless pit, chapter 8 and verse 31. Jude, in the little book of Jude, it says the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their abode, in other words, in heaven, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for judgment until this great day. In other words, in the abyss are demons. Some of the demons are sent to the abyss. Um, Peter said it in 2 Peter 2, 4. God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And so we think this broad term of hell may include the bottomless pit where the, where some of the demons are chained. So you've got to think throughout all of this time are these demons under the, the control of Abaddon, Apollyon, who, the destroyer, who hate God, who hate God's people, and they're literally straining at their chains. They're powerful spiritual beings, literally straining at their chains to be allowed out so that they can physically and spiritually torment people. It's a very frightening picture. And this reminds us, this locust swarm should remind you of the prophecy of Joel, if you recall. But these are unusual locusts. They're creatures from the pit. Verses 3 through 5, you'll notice that. Smoke and hideous creatures pour out of the smoke from, with, out of the smoke from the pit. They physically, spiritually torment people who don't have the seal of God upon them. It's like we're caught in a demonic crossfire at this time in the tribulation. Satan, or a demonic being who has fallen, is given the keys to the bottomless pit, and the demons that have been straining at their chains for untold centuries are unleashed in their fury upon the earth and upon its inhabitants. Mark Hitchcock is a faithful prophetic writer, and he writes, he wrote it like this. He said it like this. Add to this the fact that Revelation 12, Satan is fallen, hosts are cast down from heaven to earth. And the earth will be caught in the demonic crossfire as Satan and fallen angels are cast from the atmospheric and divine heavens 
above down to the earth and the demons from the abyss below are dredged up to the earth and the earth will literally be teeming with swarms of dreadful demonic beings. It will be an Auschwitz type of experience for those who must endure it. The diabolical forces from both heaven and hell will be unleashed to practice their unimaginable atrocities upon mankind. Revelation 9 reveals that in the last days the earth will be invaded by a force of aliens unlike anything man could ever concoct in a special effects lab. That's his description of what this is like. In other words, you may not understand all the symbolism, but just a child reading this could say, oh my, that is a horrifying thing that's going to be happening. Now, how do people react to this? How do they react? In the next section, in the sixth trumpet or the second woe, there's going to be another horrible thing that happens. And then verses 20 and 21 are the reaction of the people. It's a literary feature saying the reaction of the people is important. How do the people react? Your reaction to what God does is really important, right? So God acts, and we should act in response to the way God acts. God speaks, we should act when God speaks. That's why when we read the word, the word of God for the people of God, the people of God don't just listen to the word, but they act in obedience to the word. That's what, that's the idea here. This is not a, a lecture or a teaching. It's a preachment that's in, designed to stir you up to act based on what God has said in his word. And, and so in, in this, they react and the reaction is really frightening. It's one of the most frightening things I've ever read in the Bible. Look at it. It's in verse six. In those days, men will seek death and not find it. They will literally want to die. This is against the grain of the most powerful human instinct for the preservation of life. Now, at this point, they will be tormented in such a terrible way, physically, spiritually, mentally, that they will literally want to die. But in the five-month period of time, the duration of these, the effect of these creatures from the pit, they will find that death flees from them. And then it launches back from verses 7 through 10 into an even greater description of these beings. Mark and Candy Frommer, Candy works with a fellow named David Drowski, and David is an artist, and she asked him to draw a picture based on the scriptures of what this might look like, and he did that for us. And you, you probably want to see this up close. You can see it on my, my Facebook page. But obviously... In each one of these features that he drew is a feature that comes, and whether it looks like this or not, only the Lord knows, but it's definitely accurate based on the feature, in, this, in terms of the things that represent the features. Like, they're like, the creatures are described in verses 7 through 10, like horses with a gold crown on their head, faces like men, hair like women, teeth like lions, body armor, move like chariots with a loud, intimidating noise, and the tails like scorpions that have a sting in them. Another way to say it is, their head has a crown like God. Their face has a face like men. Their hair is hair like women. Their teeth are teeth like lions. Their breastplates are like iron. Their wings are like chariots and sound like many chariots and horses, and their tails are like scorpions. We probably have no idea. As a matter of fact, if you read some kind of maybe semi-irresponsible prophetic writing, these are helicopters in those books. These are, these are, these are uh, the elements of modern mechanical warfare in those books. I, I think not. I don't think that's the, the best way to handle this kind of literature is to kind of extrapolate forward into the future and guess that these are uh, flame-throwing helicopters and things like that. We, this is what we do know. They're, they come from hell. They come from the bottomless pit. They have this 
hateful being over them, and they are inflicting great harm on people on the earth who don't have the seal of God upon them. They are like horses is a symbol of warfare. The body armor is obviously indicative of warfare. They move like chariots. With They have a crown of gold, and this is the Stephanus crown. So they're like they're conquering victorious. They have faces like men. Why? Well, they're, they're not just insects here. We're talking about beings. We're talking about creatures. They have faces like men. They're, they are in, individuals. Hair like women. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, teeth like lions. You, you, you study that one and let me know. Some say, well, you know, they have hair like women because Satan is seductive and he, and he looks good, but he's really bad. But I think the rest of this would make him look really bad even if he had long hair. So I don't know if that's it. One of the things that you do in Revelation when you look for symbols is you look within the passage. Is there something in the passage or in Revelation that, that interprets the symbol? And you have that. Like it says, they go like horses for war. So we know that the horse is the symbol of war. We know that. We have the Stephanus crown is a victor. We know that that symbol is interpreted in the passage. The long hair thing isn't interpreted in the passage. So we kind of broaden out from there. And we go, well, where else in the Bible is long hair a symbol of something? And you have people in the Bible, sometimes the Bible, the symbol of long hair, the Nazarite, who lets his hair grow out, is certainly not in rebellion against God, but he's in submission to God. But there are other men who let their hair grow out in rebellion against God. Um, it may be indicative of the de- deceptive nature of these creatures, or it may be indicative of the rebellion. I really don't know. They move like chariots with a loud, intimidating noise, and their tails sting like scorpions. Enough to say this is horrifying. Their leaders named in verse 11, the Hebrew name Abaddon, the Greek name Apollyon. It's almost like to say, no matter whether you're Jew or Greek, you won't escape this unless you have the seal of God upon you. Their English name, destroyer, is what these names mean. If the being in verses 11 and 12 is the same angel as the one in, as the angel in verse 1, is that an interesting thought? Could be different. Could be the same, right? If the being that's described, uh, is the same angel, it's probably not Satan because Satan is not associated with the bottomless pit until he's cast into it later. His true nature, though, is revealed, and he wants to torment, and he wants to destroy. And if you don't yield to God, you will eventually be under the power of the one who wants to steal and kill and destroy. So right now, you're making decisions in your life about whether you will, whether Jesus will be your king and your Lord, or whether you will be your king and your Lord, but you're deceiving yourself because you can't be your king and your Lord. If you say, I will rule my own life, Satan will really rule your life. If anyone but God rules your life, then God is in control of your life, and Satan is in control of your life. And, and, People who think that they're their own boss are really self-deceived. They're in bondage to Satan. Even if it seems like they're living kind of normal, uh, successful lives, they really have broken God's design, and they will face God's judgment. Let's go to the second part of this then in the next two hours. Um, verses 13 through 21. And billions die. So in the first section, verses 1 through 12, you have millions who are being tormented. But in the second section, in this next, the sixth of the trumpet seals, this is millions die here. Four angels are given authority to release a vast army. The release, the four angels are released and the, and the angels that are holding back these demonic cords of 200 million strong, the 200 million strong, I believe, demonic army and now is poured out upon the earth and horrifying things begin to happen. 
the sixth angel has the trumpet, release the four angels. Verse 14, bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year are released to kill a third of mankind. The army is 200 million. Horses in the vision and those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. So you had people dying of fire, smoke, and brimstone. It was kind of correspond with the three colors there. There's a huge army that's described. Do we understand every symbolic possibility here? I, I don't think anybody does. But what we do understand should put the fear of God in us. It's clear there will be a great demonic judgment during this time. But there's an opportunity to repent. Did you ever think when you saw this, this is horrifying? can't believe I'm reading this in the Bible. This is the same Jesus they taught me about in Sunday school, who healed people and cast out demons, who loved people and raised people from the dead. Yes. And as an expression of his mercy, he's turning up the heat of warning so hot. These people that are living, as long as they're living, still have an opportunity to repent. There's this torment. They can't die. So that means they can still repent. If you're alive, you can still repent. You can repent. Some of you that are sitting here right now, maybe all of us to some degree, that's the number one priority that we ought to have is to find out what in our life is not pleasing to God and fully and thoroughly repent and make our way back to God and find ourselves in the love of God. Our marriages work better when we repent. Our families work better. Our churches work better. You and I need to faithfully and regularly scan our lives to repent. And return to God, and, and, and we'll, we suffer until we do. There is this reaction of the survivors in verses 20 and 21. And it is really the climax of this chapter, and, and it's, it's, it's shocking, really. You would think, and if you study further in Revelation, you will see that when people are bearing this judgment, they know that it's not coming from helicopters, or it's not coming from demons primarily. It's not coming primarily from world-conquering dictators. It's coming from God. God is allowing it, pouring out his judgment. And the people are aware of that because they're cursing God. And that's true. And look, look at their response now in verse 20. The rest of mankind, not the ones who were sealed and protected, not the ones who were killed, but the ones who lived through these plagues, they did not repent. Are you kidding me? That's the most shocking part, isn't it? They didn't repent. Just think of that. How could you escape God's judgment? Just repent. And then you either die and go to heaven or he protects you. But all you have to do is just, as a pastor, I've watched people, and it's so obvious what they need to do. The Bible is clear about what they need to do. Some of you are sitting right now. You have decisions that you know the Bible is black and white clear about, and you're still deciding whether or not you will repent and obey God or do what you want to do. And I'm just saying here, there, there should be the smell of sulfur hanging around you right now. Your life is about to be destroyed. Until you say, God, I will do what you want me to do. I'll swiftly run to you. I repent. I turn. I want to do what you want. I want you to run my life. I do not want to run my life. What is it that scares you? Our daughter Heidi is a police officer's wife. Our son-in-law Austin is a police officer. I think he's six years in now in Kenosha. And he's being promoted to like another unit. And so he's not going to be a patrolman anymore. And so the last night of his patrol... Heidi, our daughter, who is a scaredy cat, decided that she was going to do a ride-along. My brave wife, Lois, did a ride-along. I just, I didn't worry for her. I worried for the criminals. She's tough. 
she loved that. She did a ride along, and it was fun, wasn't it, Lois? She came home with all kinds of exciting stories. She should probably be a detective herself. Pity the criminals. She'd be good at that. She, um, Heidi did a ride along, and she's doing the Snapchat while she's doing the ride along, which is kind of unique. You know, and so the first of the night is like, well, I'm doing a ride along. She gets a little Snapchat, shows up, and she's all happy. She's got her makeup on. She sleeps, I think, in her makeup. I'm not sure. And not really. And so she's got her little hair and her makeup. She's a petite blonde, you know, mom of two. And she's like, hey, I'm doing a ride along, and here's Austin, and he's got his police up about two o'clock in the morning. You know, she's like slumped down in the cruiser, and she does another one, and it's like, we just pulled a guy over. I think he has drugs, you know. And another point, <laughs> she slumps down even further, and she says on the Snapchat, Okay, they, they had a shooting, and he was going to have to drop me off on the corner at 3 o'clock in the morning in the ghetto to go to the shooting. So she was scared. I would say that's legit. That's legit. I would be scared. If I was a petite blonde in Kenosha, Wisconsin, 3 o'clock in the winter morning in the ghetto, I would be scared. If I was not a petite blonde, if I had actually shaved my hair and I weighed about 200 plus, a lot plus, I, I would be scared. What is it that you get scared about? Like, do you get scared about um, the future? Do you get scared about people? Do you, get, do you fear men? Do you fear unpopularity? Do you fear poverty? Do you fear loneliness? Do you fear losing your job? Do you fear, what do you fear? Do you fear the night? Do you fear the darkness? Can I, can I make a suggestion to you? We're getting here to the climax of the Bible, and things are getting shaken down so that we can really tell what's what and who's who and what matters and what's valuable. And here's the message that's coming through loud and clear. The one that you ought to fear and respect is God. And when you fear God, then the other stuff isn't as important. People that have their stuff together are people who fear God. People who are like kind of like have all kinds of other fears and they don't fear God. How foolish is that? I want you to notice the five things that are listed that they won't repent of. I've listed them in simple order, and I think you're going to recognize these things. They wouldn't repent of false religion, any religion. People are innately religious, right? They just don't want Jesus to be their king. So they have a religion. People talk about that in our nation now. We're talking about all the, what they call, great religions of the world. I don't call them great religions of the world, because if a religion is going to take me to hell, it would not be great to me. See what I'm saying? So... Jesus is the king. He's the one that's the lamb on the throne here at the end. This is the one upon whom I am trusting for my eternal salvation and no other God. There is no other God. There is no other God. All the other gods are knockoff, counterfeits, come, Johnny come lately, gods who didn't die and rise from the dead. Jesus alone is the conquering king who shed his blood, who was buried and rose again, and who rides in victory in the heavens, and he's going to come and rule the earth someday. He's the king. He doesn't have to be elected. He's already there. So the people wouldn't repent of their false religion. Their, people like have religions, but they don't have the one true religion. They, they have a disregard for human life. They wouldn't repent of their murders. Isn't that interesting? Now what we're doing, if somebody exposes Planned Parenthood, he gets thrown in jail. And the people that were selling the body parts don't get thrown in jail. But they are going to face God someday. And he's not going to be confused about that. He's going to say, did you regard human life? You know you didn't regard human life. Repent of your murder, he's going to say. Um, drugs and alcohol addiction, the sorceries, and all that goes back then. They had the, the use of drugs and alcohol for the purposes of uh, euphoric feelings. This still happens sometimes in the downriver. Mostly on the weekend, but often every night. 
and maybe that's something you struggle with, addictions. Then there's, of course, variations on the theme that never seem to change sexual immorality or confusion or sexual perversion. And God, God is saying, you wouldn't repent of these things, therefore you're going to be judged. And dishonesty and crime, the five things, false religion, disregard for human life, drug and alcohol, use, addiction, sorceries, sexual immorality, confusion, perversion, dishonesty, crime. It just sounds like the, the, the newspaper in any major city in America or, by the way, in the countryside, it's like that, too. If you, you, know, you don't move to the countryside because they're killing each other for prescription medications in the countryside now. It's not safe. I didn't mean to ruin your day. but And what do they do? They harden their hearts. God help us not to harden our hearts, but to be quick to admit our sins, even the beginning of our sins, right? Think about that. First Timothy 4.12 says they had their consciences seared like with a hot iron. It's like when you're younger, you know that things are wrong. After you do them for a while, then you sear your conscience. In Second Thessalonians, there is this kind of apocalyptic reference to the future time when God is going to give a strong delusion that they would believe a lie. So some people are they're going to say, well, I'll wait and I'll believe later. But maybe you won't be able to do that. And it might be something that you don't want to do. Let me just say some things about sin before we quit. Sin is addicting. Sin is addicting. Can I get an amen on that? Or yeah, you're right. Or woe is me. Yeah. Sin is addicting. It will make you stupid. This is from camp. This is my camp uh, piece right there. I know I wouldn't normally say to adults, sin will make you stupid. That's what I would normally say to teenagers. Sin will make you stupid. Can I give you an example? You are an example of that. But another example. Um, another, I mean, me too. Like we, like we all are an example. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're particularly stupid. I'm just saying that you know that when you do bad things, you're like, why did I do that? Well, what was I thinking? Yeah, right? And so like there's Samson. Samson with the hair and the Delilah. Remember that piece of story, you know? And Delilah's here, slay in my lap so I can send you to the Philistines and they can kill you and poke your eyes out. He's like, okay, sweetie pie. And he lays down her lap. You know, and then it's like, the Philistines are upon you, and he jumps up, and he's like, Delilah, why did you do that? The next night, he's laying in her lap again. <laughs> why did he do that? I mean, I'm dumb, but seriously, I think I could figure that out. Delilah, no. No, the last time I put my head in your lap, it was an ugly business. I'm not doing that again. He does it again. And I'm reading that story, I'm going, what is that about? Why would a guy do something? Because sin makes you say it with me. Stupid. Sin makes you stupid. And then sin makes you stubborn. Do you agree with me? You know why? You're stubborn. That's why. Because sin makes you stubborn. So like, first I sin, and then I find out it's kind of habit forming, and then I'm like doing stupid things, even though I might be a really smart, some of the smartest people, some of the stupidest things you have ever seen done by human beings are done on college campuses where you have to be smart to get accepted. Is that true? You gotta be smart to go to college, and then you do really stupid things. Some of these stupidest things that I've ever heard said were said, somebody panned people to teach them. It's stupid. It's, yeah, I was, I was a big explosion in the sky one day, and then there was like, there's us. Well, that makes perfect sense. I'm glad I paid you $500 a credit hour for that. Are you serious? Come on. Or, or the girl who says, you know, I'm a cat. You can do that now. You have, you have civil rights to be a cat if you want to. Or the guy who says he's a four-year-old girl. He's a civil rights for that. It's just that kind of sin makes you really stupid. And then you dig in and you're stubborn. It's not just them, it's us. And then sin makes you a slave eventually. 
and you're in bondage, you can't get out. You think, I'm in control. If you say, I will do what I want to do long enough, you will do what the devil wants you to do. And you will not be able to get away from it. And the only chance is to flee to God. And he rescues you and you repent. Your great champion, Jesus, comes in. He rides in and rescues us. Sin makes you suffer. It makes you stupid. It makes you stubborn. No extra charge for this alliteration today. It makes you slave. And it will make you suffer. The Bible literally says, do you know there are like almost... There are eight or ten places in the Bible that specifically say, and I didn't make this up, that hell is eternal conscious torment forever. I'll show you that. Not not today, because you don't want me to go on and on. But I'll show you in the scriptures soon where where the Bible teaches about how the duration of hell is not not annihilation, because the Bible specifically uses terms that it uses everywhere else to describe a long, interminable period of time. And that's the description of hell. It's not, it's unbelievable to think about. Sin will eventually make you suffer forever and forever and forever. You say, well, how, what should I do? Well, it's really simple. You repent, you, you run to God, you agree with God. Jesus is coming, and when he's coming, he's coming with judgment and reward. Jude, uh, the little letter of Jude says it this way in verses 15 and, and 23. I'll read it to you. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in ungodly ways, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Save them! With fear, pulling them from the fire, hating even the garment that's been defiled by the flesh. Our job is to escape ourselves from the grip of sin through Christ and then help other people escape. To re- If you aren't saved, I just would say very simply, you've heard this frightening description of the future. Repent and be saved and you'll, you'll be delivered. Don't waste your opportunities to repent. Return. And if you're a believer already, then always return to God over and over again. Don't waste your opportunities to repent. Keep returning to God. Keep returning. That's what it looks like. To simplify the Christian life, I would just say this. Keep returning to God. When trouble comes, go back to God. When you sin, go back to God. When you're ashamed, go back to God. When you slip and you get distracted, go back to God. When you say something you shouldn't have said, keep going back to God. God will keep drawing you back to himself. Keep going back to God. When trouble comes into your life, keep going back to God because he's coming someday to judge the living and the dead. It's just that simple. There's a man I respect a great deal. Most of you know him and respect him too. He's a good guy. He's a wonderful dad. He's a wonderful husband. He's a wonderful leader in the church. He's got a strong testimony even among people who don't know the Lord. He's telling me that There was just a brief period of time in his youth when he wasn't where he should be with the Lord. Can you relate to that? I said to him, well, what what made you come back to God? Because I would like to bottle that and give it to everybody I know. Every kid in our youth group, come on, man, don't drift away. That'll be so sad. And he said, I don't know. I was just driving along the road one night at 2 o'clock in the morning. And it was like God in his grace drew me back to himself. And I realized how foolish I was being. And I came back to God. And the Lord brought a woman into his life shortly thereafter. And, they gave, and he gave them a beautiful Christian family. So there you have it. You have the bliss of heaven and the path on the way to heaven, which is up and down, but it ends in heaven. Heaven. 
And then you have the path, the wide path that almost everybody follows that leads to destruction and to the destroyer and to demons and to hell and to torment. And it's your choice. So how simple is that? We're going to sing a beautiful song. It's a new song. And it's based on an ancient prayer written by Puritans. It's a very beautiful, meaningful song. We're going to stand in a minute, and as we sing the song together, it's not just a song to entertain us or to dismiss us, but it's a song. I want to give you an opportunity to come to God or come back to God right now.